Great to see all of you again this morning. If you would turn to John 19, we're going to be continuing our study through this wonderful gospel. John chapter 19. We'll begin reading at the latter part of verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Incidentally, in Latin, it's Calvary. In case you're more familiar with Calvary as a term, they're both translations. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we come again humbly before your word, wanting to be instructed wanting to come away with a greater vision of your greatness, the wonder of your grace. Lord, so thrill our hearts today. Awaken passion and worship as we look at this most central event in our faith. May we see Christ, Holy Spirit, come and do Your primary task, glorify Jesus in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This from the Washington Post, April 2007. It reads, He emerged from the metro at the L'Enfant Plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. A youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money, swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic, and began to play. 
In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Each passerby had a quick choice to make. Do you stop and listen? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't you? What's the moral mathematics of the moment? On that Friday in January, those private questions would be answered in an unusually public way. No one knew it, but the fiddler standing against a bare wall outside the metro in an indoor arcade at the top of the escalators was one of the finest classical musicians in the world. Playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. It estimated at three and a half million dollars. His performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Three days before he appeared at the metro station, Joshua Bell, former child prodigy, had filled the house at Boston's Stately Symphony Hall, where merely pretty good seats went for $100. Two weeks later at the Music Center in Strathmore, North Bethesda, he would play to a standing room only audience so respectful of his artistry that they stifled their coughs into the silence between the movements. But on that Friday in January, Joshua Bell was just another beggar competing for the attention of busy people on their way to work. Bell has been accepting over-the-top accolades since puberty. Interview Magazine once said his playing, quote, does nothing less than tell human beings why they bother to live. <laughs> In the three-quarters of an hour that Bell played, seven people stopped to hang around, at least for a minute. Twenty-seven, twenty-seven gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32.17. 1,070 hurried by oblivious to the virtuoso whose talents command $1,000 a minute. There are six moments in the video. There was a hidden camera watching all of this. There were six moments in the video that Bell finds particularly painful to relive. The awkward times, he calls them. It's what happens right after each piece. Nothing. The music stops. The same people who hadn't noticed him playing don't notice that he's finished. No applause, no acknowledgement. In interviews conducted after the experiment, only one person in all of them recognized Bell. She had attended his concert three days earlier. Stacy Furukawa positioned herself ten feet away from Bell, front row and center. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping and not even looking. And some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters. Only one in a thousand recognized who he was and the significance of what was happening there. As we come to John 19 and we read these verses the greatest composition of God, God's magnum opus has just begun. And no one recognizes this. It, this song, this great symphony of God wasn't played at the Acropolis in Athens or before the Roman prefects in the Roman court. It was played outside Jerusalem near a trash heap. This morning's passage brings us really to the very heart of the Christian faith. The cross has not been the symbol of Christianity for 2,000 years for no reason. 
And so, though we are, I think we all appreciate this fact, though we are on holy ground every time we open God's Word. Isn't that true? I have felt all week reading this passage over and over that this is, in a sense, most holy ground. And I think there's a sense in which all of the gospel accounts attest to that fact because they all slow way down when they get here. As we move through chapter one, two, three, four, we can almost mark time with a calendar. But here you can hear the clock ticking second by second, statement by statement. And the reason for that is not because the gospel writers have a morbid fascination with gruesome crucifixion. The reason they slow down and stop is because every moan and every bruise and every saying and every jeer has theology in it. There is significance in this moment like no other moment. God is on a cross. This has never happened before. In one sense, looking from the outside with the naked eye, this has happened like crazy in Rome. There were periods in Rome where there was a war that took place for a few months. After that war, for six months, there were 500 crucifixions a day in the Roman Empire. They would have seen a lot of this. This was common fare. But for the gospel writers, this was anything but common fare. Stop the music. God is dying on a cross. I want to make some observations from the passage this morning, kind of walk through John 19 and observe aspects of the story, retelling it, reliving it, going through it. And then I want to relate that to the glory that is underneath this text. There is something going on redemptively, something cosmic that is transpiring in this passage. So let's move on through. Turn back to John chapter 19. Beginning in verse 19, something interesting is happening. John, he likes to, throughout his gospel, pick up on irony. He uses irony quite a bit, double meaning. right? So when someone says something and they don't even realize what they meant, John always likes to highlight those things. So Caiaphas, back in chapter 18, verse 14, the high priest, one of the people, humanly speaking, most responsible for having Jesus executed. Caiaphas says it was Caiaphas, verse 14, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people, to which John would have immediately said, Amen. But not to what Caiaphas meant. But underneath, unwittingly, Caiaphas, who did not believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus on behalf of his people to save us and reconcile us to God, Caiaphas didn't believe that. But he said it. And in a sense, John was saying he was right on the money had he only known it. And over here in John chapter 19, verse 19, we have a first occasion of not Caiaphas, but another mover and shaker who got Jesus crucified, Pilate. Pilate says and writes and placards above the cross over Jesus. He writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's exactly what Jesus of Nazareth was. He was the long-promised Messiah who had come, the son of the great King David who would sit on David's throne. He was, to be sure, the king of the Jews. So Pilate didn't know he was right on the money. The only thing Spurgeon says I would add, he said, if Pilate had only known better, he would have said, this is the king of the Jews 
and of the Gentiles as well. In fact, the word king occurs about 10 times in this episode alone, which I think is John's way of signaling to us. The one that they mock and they put the robe and they put the crown on really is the king. He is God. Furthermore, you read on and in verse 20, this was written in all of the languages of the modern world in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jewish people living in Palestine. It was written in Greek, which was the common language for everyone in the entire Roman Empire. It was written in Latin, which was the speech of the exalted lectures in in the Roman courts, the Roman legislature, and Roman philosophy. So, in a sense, it was written for all the world to see and to know this Jesus is the king. John's pointing us to that fact. Then in verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And here we have yet another formal rejection of the Messiah on the part of his own people. Which only surprises us if we haven't read John chapter 1. We've already been here. This has already been anticipated. John chapter 1 said he came to his own, but what? His own received him not. This is not surprising. And yet again, there is striking irony in this. Because if you read Mark's gospel account of this same episode, just after Jesus dies, a Roman centurion of all people confesses this would have been a guy who Caesar signed his paychecks. And he said, the moment after Jesus died, truly, this was the son of God. And what do we read in chapter 19, verse 15? The Roman centurion said Jesus is the son of God. God's Old Testament people say we have no king but Caesar. And thus we have the long prophesied rejection of both Jews and Gentiles of the Messiah. And it's played out here in our passage. Verse 23. Well, the soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. There would have been a quadrant of soldiers, four soldiers assigned to each cross. It was their task to make this the most horrendous experience they ever could imagine. And so they were trained in brutality. They knew how to bring you right to the edge of death and then pull back and wait. And extend your life as long as possible so that that searing agony lasted long. And sometimes they caused it to last days people would live on the cross. And these four soldiers are dividing Jesus' garments. One garment goes to this soldier, one to this one, one to this one, one to this one, and there's a, a seamless tunic that's left. Who gets that? So they cast lots for it. They're making sport of the suffering of Jesus, thinking about later on that afternoon, walking around saying, guess where I got these sandals? Somebody said these sandals walked on water. Thinking about how much they get on eBay for Jesus' tunic. Auctioning it off. As we saw in John 18. Rejection and opposition to Jesus can take a number of different faces. You know, in our more civilized society. We don't live in this utterly barbaric Roman first century context. 
But here, there's still opposition to Jesus in our own kind of casual, indifferent way. G.A. Studdard Kennedy wrote this poem about the difference between that culture and ours and the common heart of indifference to Jesus. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep, for those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. But when Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender and would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And this is the casual indifference of our culture to Jesus, sloughing him off like an unrecognized virtuoso playing in the metro station in Washington, flipping quarters at the cross, not realizing the gravity of the moment and the identity of the sufferer. Soldiers proceeded to make sport of Jesus' trial. For the soldiers, this was just another day at the office. They did what they always did. They expanded their wardrobes at the cost of the person who was dying. And note the contrast that, that John even highlights here at the end of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things, but four people were there and recognized who this was. Recognized this was not just another criminal dying under Roman rule. This was God. Who were they? Standing at the cross, you see Jesus' mother, his aunt, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary, the wife of Clopas, is often thought of to be the same mother who was the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome. Two of her sons would have been Disciples of Jesus. As a matter of fact, not long before this passage, she, in a moment of overambition for her boys, had a sidebar with Jesus and asked that her sons would have the privilege of being positioned on his left and his right. I'm sure at this moment she wasn't feeling. She wanted that wish to be granted as he was being crucified between two criminals. But there she was. John was there also. Mary was likely a widow. By this point, Jesus, in keeping with his father's commands from the Old Testament, honors and cares for his mother in this moment. So it's a really sweet saying that God himself, God the Son on the cross, would dedicate one of his last statements from the cross in order to make sure that his mother was cared for. And so he says, and gives her to the charge of John. And tradition has it that she lived with John in Jerusalem until her death. In verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Given how strongly John acts, and we learned this last week from Pastor Peter's message on the fulfillment of scripture in John's gospel. Given how indebted John is to this point, how much he accents the fact that all the things that are going on here are fulfillments of ancient prophecies that have been living on in the people's memory. And he's pointing to these events as fulfillments of those prophecies. Given that that's John's accent, it's not surprising that John 
wants to end his account. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he ends his account with this exalted saying, is finished. And Charles Spurgeon comments in this way about that. What it was it that was finished? I will not attempt to expound it. It is the biggest it that ever was. Turn it over. That's the old English way of saying mull it over. Think about it. Turn it over and you will see that it will grow and grow and grow and grow till it fills the whole earth. And we're going to look in just a moment at the way in which the cross and the redemptive work of Jesus in John 19 really literally touches everything in the cosmos. Everything in the universe is affected by what's transpiring here on Golgotha. Let me just say, before we get into that, these gospel accounts are first and foremost historical accounts. The the Christian faith is not is not some mystic spiritual message that dangles in midair. It is inseparably tied to history, to real events that really happened in space time history. If in other words, if Jesus didn't live or if Jesus didn't if Jesus did live, but he didn't die or if Jesus lived and died, but he didn't rise. What are we doing here? I mean, it's a fine day for golf. Let's go fishing. I've got grass to cut. We've got things to do. Why are we here? Why are we spending passion, energy, money, time? Why are we doing that if Jesus isn't alive and this whole record is bogus? That's not my way of thinking. That's the Apostle Paul's way of thinking. Look in 2 Corinthians, uh, rather 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what's first importance? Well, Paul highlights objective facts of history. This is Christian faith's foundation. I delivered this to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Skip down to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You're wasting your time. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Jesus, whom he did not raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. One of the charges for centuries against Christianity has been to to attack the, the historical foundation of Christian faith. But the reason those charges have to keep getting repackaged over and over the centuries is they've never been sustained. Because it is extremely difficult, in fact, impossible to overcome the veracity of these gospel accounts. And so all that to say, never be ashamed to quote the Bible to verify your faith. These were eyewitnesses. Why should we quote something else? John was standing a few feet away when Jesus said, I thirst. He heard it with his ears. He was right there. Our faith is founded, is anchored, has begun in history. It's a real history. And so it's not surprising that the same writer of the Gospel of John would write later on toward the back of the Bible in first John. And he would begin his epistle with these words. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's concerning Jesus. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you, too, may have fellowship with us. These things in the Gospels, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the miracles, the sayings, the five loaves, all of that, the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection, they really happen and they have relevance for everything. The relevance of Jesus' death cannot be overstated. There's no way to overstate the relevance of John 19. And one way to see that is by considering the big story of the Bible. There are four basic chapters in the big story of the Bible. This is, this is the story of God's redemptive purposes in history. So that your Bible is not just a collection of little, unrelated, isolated stories. All those little stories are gesturing, are hinting toward a bigger story, a massive cosmic salvation project that God has underway. And there are four basic chapters, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Everything in the Bible is in some way pointing to that meta narrative, that overarching drama of redemption. And I think grasping that story will help to prevent us from flipping quarters at the cross because it'll help us see what's going on on Golgotha has cosmic relevance for the world. Do you know the story of the Bible? Are you familiar with God's grand story, God's magnum opus? Let's reflect on it just for a moment. The one true God has always existed. Self-existent, independent from creation, uncreated, eternally living in the fellowship of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. All existing in perfect self-giving love and joy and unity for eternity. Enjoying that relationship. This God is distinct from creation. Creation doesn't necessarily flow out of God like the rays of the sun from the sun. It's not automatic. God is distinct from creation. God is happy apart from creation. God did not create out of some void that only we could fill. God is independent, self-existent, self-determined. And therefore, when he creates, he creates not out of need, but out of abundance. He creates out of a gracious initiative, out of his own free will. He chose to create and he made us Male and female in his own image so that there is in every human being on the planet inherent dignity and worth because we bear the image of God. Though that image has been distorted by the fall and that therefore Christian thinking cannot tolerate racism or any form of subjugation or belittling or looking down upon other people. Because in our very own story, our documents, what God has given us, we find out that God has stamped his image on every human being. Therefore, to oppose and oppress another human being is to oppress the image of God. This is how God creates. And we were made to love and worship and obey and enjoy him forever. But we turned on him. 
and we disobeyed him and a perfect representative was chosen for us. And he did exactly. You ever wonder what you would have done in the garden? What happened is what you would have done in the garden. Our representative was justly chosen for us and we in him fell away from God. We made a grab for godness in the garden. And in that moment, we incurred guilt and we deserve to be separated from God forever. And the entire cosmos felt the tremors of that fall where life had been. Death began to spread and disease and disorder and natural disasters and divorce and rivalry and murder and oppressive governments. And all of that began to flow because God's curse was running fast and furious over the earth because God was angry at our rebellion. This was no misdemeanor. This was cosmic treason. This was an attempt to de-God God and enthrone ourselves in his place. This was usurping the authority of the sovereign king of the universe who made us out of his grace. And this just and loving God, he could have wiped us out on the spot and he would have been just for it. But instead, this just and loving God came into history in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the new Adam, the second Adam. And he was born of a virgin in a small town. And there he was in the manger, fully man. Real bones, real blood, a nervous system, lungs, a human brain. And yet at the same time, fully God upholding the molecules of the manger, his mother, the oxen, and the entire universe by the word of his power. He was fully man. He was fully God. And though tempted as he grew up, tempted in every way, he lived a perfect and sinless life, obeying his father, obeying every command, not only in the letter, but in his heart. Every thought of Jesus, every action of Jesus, every word of Jesus was fully pleasing to God and absolutely pristine with righteousness. And unlike the first Adam, who was only a man, but substituted himself for God. This was God coming to substitute himself for man. And on the cross, he willingly took the penalty for the sins of all of his people. And he paid my debt to God. All of my sins, my past sins, my present sins, my future sins. He drowned all of them. On the cross and he took all of them and he was confirmed to be dead and he was buried. And on the third day, Jesus rose in victory over sin, Satan, demons, death, hell, triumphant, risen, exalted. And he established the church and commissioned that church through the giving of the Holy Spirit to go and incarnate his life and carry this message. Be reconciled to God to carry the gospel, the good news of salvation for any who would believe. And he commissioned these and having risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven and took his seat on the throne of preeminence where he now reigns as the sovereign king over the universe. Amen. And though every eye doesn't see it now, he is ruling over all nations, all cultures, rich and poor, 
plants and animals, oceans, rivers, angels, demons, all are subject to his dominion. He sets up kings and brings them down at his word. There is not a maverick molecule in the cosmos that is not at his beck and call. He dominates the world. He's the king over all. And in the most reverence charged moment in world history, this sovereign king is coming again. And his coming will not be a silent night. It will be very, very loud. And his coming will shake the heavens and the earth. And those who have lived for themselves, for the passing pleasures of this world, who have ignored, belittled, patronized, flipped nickels at the cross, will receive just penalty for rejecting and throwing off the merciful God. And they will be cast into hell, where there they will exalt the justice of God forever. But those who simply turn to him and put their trust in his death alone on their behalf will stand in a restored creation with countless millions from every tribe, tongue, and nation, rich and poor, small and great, and there we will sing to the slain lamb. And we will know everlasting peace and unbroken joy in the presence of our King and our Father forever. And creation itself, which had been subjected to futility, and has been standing on tiptoes ever since Genesis 3, will be released from its bondage to decay. And as the prophets wrote, the, the mountains will skip like newborn calves and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And then in truth, we will sing the song that we've sung this past season. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, second coming. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Blessings running across the globe, purchasing back and redeeming God's people and creation itself. What began in a lavish garden of paradise will end in a celestial city whose builder and maker is God. That, friends, is God's story. That's the great story of our redemption. That's the progressively unfolding glorious story of the Bible. But note this. The first part of that story, with all of its misery and guilt and bondage, prepares us for, creates a yearning and anticipation for the coming, living, dying, rising Jesus. You see how that's a reference point? And everything that comes after this, all the blessings and all the glory of the new creation, turns on the hinge of John 19. In a sense, I wanted to ask you at the beginning of this message to turn to the center of your Bibles. just wasn't sure if you'd make it to John 19. Because everything turns on the hinge of John 19 and John 20 because of the resurrection. This is where it happens. All the glory of the latter part of the story, the crushing of Satan, the death of death, the beauty of God's original creation restored, the total harmony of relationships, endless joys in the new heavens and the new earth. All those blessings were bought for us when? When at the sixth hour, darkness came over the land. And enshrouded Golgotha. And there in the darkness. 
Jesus suffered. Jesus was paying down the debts of his people all the way down to the last penny. And what did he say in the midst of that darkness? My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting scripture all along, right? Surely the the echo in his heart had to be the answer to that question. Isaiah 53. You want to know why you're being forsaken? Because we agreed we had a pact in eternity past that we were going to redeem these people. You're being forsaken because Isaiah 53. You will be bruised for their transgressions. You will be crushed for their iniquities. And so hour by hour in the darkness, God's almighty justice was laying on the sun, the iniquities of us all. My insults, my jealousies, my pride, my ambition, my lust, my strings of profanities were being laid on the back of the Savior. He was bearing them. No wonder the hymns for hundreds of years have been centered around this truth. Oh Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. There are hundreds of hymns like that, born out of this glorious truth. The answer to Jesus' question, why have you forsaken me, is the glory of the gospel. He was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. He was condemned so that you and I could hear God say to us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? I asked my sons this question yesterday on the road home. Where did the condemnation go? Did God just push it aside? Let bygones be bygones? No. And the news is even better than that. Jesus absorbed it. So, quite simply, there's none left. (laughs) There's no condemnation left. One hymn writer said, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding Savior's hand and then again at mine. The price has been paid to the full. There's no wrath left for any who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that this is the heart of our faith? This is our stewardship. This is our message. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. In a sense, this is the only thing that we have to give to this world and to each other. This is our evangelism. It's our counsel. It's our hope and suffering. It's our motivation for obedience. It's our blessed hope and future expectation. It's the whole thing. Because the cross relates to everything in history. We must never, ever leave John 19 and 20. This is and will forever be the bedrock of Christian faith and the fuel of Christian worship, both here and now and then and there. I want to finish with this thought from Charles Spurgeon. 
the much-esteemed minister of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the late 1800s. It was a thrill to go look at the website for Metropolitan Tabernacle two days ago and find out that the same gospel is being preached today because this church was anchored in this message and Spurgeon gave his last breath to see to it that this gospel would be preached. So Dr. Peter Masters is serving there. This is Charles Spurgeon reflecting on Christ's perspective in the cross. Note something as we read this. Note the way in which the cross touches everything, all the future blessings that would be realized through this redemptive event. His disciples thought that the cross would be a degradation. Christ looked through the outward and visible and beheld the spiritual. The cross, said he, the gibbet of my doom may seem to be cursed with ignominy. And the world shall stand round and hiss at the crucified. My name be forever dishonored as one who died upon the tree. And cavillers and scoffers may forever throw this in the teeth of my friends that I died with the malefactor. But I look not on the cross as you do. I know it's ignominy, but I despise the shame. I am prepared to endure it all. I look upon the cross as the gate of triumph, as the portal of victory. Oh, shall I tell you what I shall behold upon the cross? Just when my eye is swimming with the last tear and when my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish, then mine eyes shall see the head of the dragon broken. It shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Mine eyes shall see my seed eternally saved. I shall behold the ransom coming from their prison houses. In that last moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for the last cry of it is finished, I shall behold the year of my redeemed come. And I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of all, my beloved. Hey, and I shall see then the world, mine own earth conquered. And all usurpers disthroned. And I shall behold and vision the glories of the latter days when I shall sit upon the throne of my father David and judge the earth, attended with the pomp of angels and the shouts of my beloved. Yes, Christ saw in his cross the victories of it. And therefore did he pant and long for it as being the place of victory and the means of conquest. I said, Jesus, if I be lifted up, if I be exalted, he puts his crucifixion as being his glory. What do you see when you see Jesus on the cross? Just facts, events, details, just the story as naked story? Or do you see in the story the glory of our salvation? The glory of our Redeemer, the glory of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operating together to accomplish the redemption of sinners who deserve nothing but death and damnation. So this, this is what wakes Christianity up. If it's going to be woken, this is what wakes it up. 
This, this is what turns mere songs into you set my feet to dancing. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Therefore, my soul shall sing praise to you and not be silent forevermore. Where does that psalm come from? It comes from a vision of the greatness of our saving God. Let's pray. Lord, you saw the glory of what was about to be accomplished. And your disciples saw it as well. And this event became the driving truth in preaching, in missions, in worship, in life, in death. Lord, may it be so for us. So that 100 years from now, when we're all dead and gone, the people who gather in this place exalt the same Savior and glory in the same story or appreciate the goodness, loving kindness and mercy of our God. Let's stand. Thank you.